Welcome to the 74 and West Exclusives Podcast. Today's episode, we're going to continue our discussion and exploration of ESG. We're going to be focusing on the E with a little touch of the S, and we're going to do it with our guest. Leslie Harwell. And Leslie is? The managing partner of Alente Capital. And I run a venture capital fund that's focused on sustainable systemic change in the apparel industry. So obviously that means they're just investing in really, really environmentally friendly fashion brands, right? Wrong. We invest across different types of technology from material science and software for enterprises to consumer platforms to help make the whole ecosystem of apparel production and retail more environmentally and socially sustainable. Supply chains and production and venture capital. Before you say, hey, this doesn't apply to me, wait, sure it does. Everyone wears clothes. But hang on. Before we talk good style and sustainable substance, we need to touch on one very important fact. Alante Capital was founded and is run by two women. For the VC space, this is rare, and it's definitely an important part of the story. See, a lot of what Leslie does is all about the E in ESG, which is to say the environment. But there's a real intersection with the S, the social aspect. Leslie explains. Yeah, it was definitely a big part of our mindset when we started the firm. Um, And just a part of my business partner and my ethos, just generally speaking, um, we were trying to figure out how to talk about that in a way that made sense for us, because we do have kind of a niche investment thesis already. So the types of companies that we're going to invest in are already restricted by, you know, needing to have some sort of application into the apparel industry. But we really wanted to make sure that our interest and desire to help be a catalyst really reduce kind of unconscious bias and decision-making processes came through. Okay, I said it was rare for two women to run a VC fund. How rare? There's a statistic that I saw yesterday, and I think it's 63% of venture capital funds still don't have a female um, investment decision maker, um, so like a partner-level person. So it, it, it is still quite unusual for women to be running venture capital funds. And I think the statistics range between kind of 1% and 2% of startup companies that get funded at the Series A. I could be off on the stage or, or whatnot, but it's only 1% to 2% female-founded in those companies. And there is this kind of reflection in that if you don't have a decision-making sort of group of people in this broader industry to reflect the founders of the companies that they're investing in, unconscious bias frequently gets in the way of really looking at the companies themselves, what they're able to do, what the founders' backgrounds really are, their expertise, all of those types of things. How do they address that? The way that we've really thought about this is making sure that we have a policy statement for us as we develop our pipeline of investment opportunities, really trying as hard as we can to make sure that that's diverse, um, whether that's in terms of the, um, the race of the founders, the gender of the founders, the sexual orientation of the founders, um, and a statement that we really um, do look to eliminate unconscious bias in our decision-making process. But as it turns out, this kind of thing comes naturally to Alante. Actually, the goal for us was 
to have a 50% um, kind of female or diverse founding um, or C-suite teams in our investment pipeline. And we really hadn't put a ton of thought into putting quotas or anything on how that would turn into our existing portfolio or our portfolio over time when we actually do make investments. Um, but actually where it's landed now is we have three existing investments in the portfolio. We're about to make three new investments, so we'll have six companies in our portfolio. And we'll actually have 100% diversity on founding teams or in the C-suite among those six companies. Now remember... These six companies are not necessarily six fashion brands you'd recognize from an Instagram ad that shows up in your feed or a catalog that gets stuffed into your mailbox. Frequently, people um, have the preconceived notion that we're going to be investing in apparel brands and, and sort of fashion companies themselves, which is a totally like looking at sort of digitally native brands and emerging brands is, you know, an investment practice and a way of looking at things in and of themselves. Um, but I think it's more of a, a lack of awareness that people have of like how we actually get the things that we consume, whether that's food or fashion, and the steps along the process that it takes to get there. I think you know people don't think about where beef comes from just the same way that they don't think about the number of people that it took to make their T-shirts. Right. Um, and I think when you start breaking down those supply chains and how we actually um, produce the things that we consume and think about the inefficiencies and the waste that goes into those types of processes, um, the mindset shifts drastically. And I think the pandemic actually changed a lot of that because we saw a breakdown in supply chains and actually having access to problems around access to things that we consume. And all of a sudden, so many of the things that um, we were having to really explain, um, didn't have to be explained anymore because they were much more in the, the consciousness of just the normal consumer. So I asked Leslie to tell me a little bit more about this unseen world of the apparel industry. Well, the, the way that we think about it is through the entire life cycle in the supply chain. So from the time that cotton grows on a field and takes just an insane amount of water to grow, um, and that thinking about how land is being used, um, you know, and we need land for food, not for fiber, if there are other ways to get fiber. Um, 80% of clothing that's made has polyester in it, and polyester is a petroleum product. Um, it sheds into the oceans, it gets into soil and air, um, and it doesn't biodegrade. And so thinking about from that production phase, things being dyed and the environmental impact that that has and the health impact that it has on the people who make it. And then there's when you see those really great sales, or in other words, overproduction. overproduction. When you look at all of the things that are marked down, um, it means that who the brand um, did not think about demand and the demand and the supply in a way that was optimized um, for production. Um, and so what that means from an overproduction perspective and the pressures that it puts on labor um, and forcing kind of unit costs on labor down further and further and further um, and the economics of that. Uh, so thinking about all of those things, thinking about design um, and how you can design in a digital way instead of physically manufacturing products. And this, Leslie says, goes all the way to how we consume things and thinking about 
improving the, the length of use of an item of clothing, thinking about e-commerce and the issue of returns, like very different in clothing than it is in electronics and food because fit is such an issue. In fact, how things fit and how we return them when they don't is such an issue that Leslie says... About, I think, 30 to 40% of clothing that's bought through e-commerce is returned. Most of that is returned because of fit issues. And depending on the brand and depending on, you know, how pricey the item is, between 25 to 40% of that stuff is never resold. It actually goes to landfill or is burned. All of this waste, all of these inefficiencies, they sound bad. But on the flip side... There's a huge, you know, there's a huge opportunity there for these large brands um, to change the way that they're doing things operationally and the way that in already the way that people are consuming is changing drastically. Alante definitely has their finger on the pulse of the apparel industry, but this stuff isn't exactly news to investors. If you think about like a company like H&M, a lot of um, hedge funds actually shorted them years ago because they had $3.1 billion worth of unsellable inventory. And to us, things like that are sustainability issues. Um, and so when you think about in the broader market, the importance of ESG, you see something like that. And you think, okay, why did that happen in the first place? It's an important question because despite all the shorting that happened, things really haven't changed. And that that's where Alante comes in. For us, what the more interesting thing was was to sit back and say, well, how do again, like how do we fix that and how do we stop that from happening in the first place? What kind of tools do we need in place to really um, build a system where supply is actually driven by demand and more responsive to demand um, rather than the way that it's happening now in which you have outcomes like that that are incredibly inefficient, um, mean value destruction for these large companies. Um, And so what we're doing is we're looking for the solutions that can alleviate some of these challenges um, that are strategic issues for these large companies. But the apparel industry is big really big. And big things can take a long time to change. So I asked Leslie, what can change in the short term? So there, there are a couple of things. In the, the immediate term, there are man-made cellulosic fibers. So things like tensile, lyocell, viscose that come from FSE certified forests, um, which exist. Um, and so that's a, a, a sort of a better fiber, if you will. Um, there is growing amount of recycled cotton and recycled polyester out there. Polyester is still a problem, but buying recycled polyester is better. But all of those things are just sort of shifting and changing um, quite a bit. And so we actually have invested in a couple of companies in this space. Most large brands have made commitments to um, reduce their reliance on virgin materials. So it's thinking about you know, reducing pressures on land by finding alternate sources for those fibers. And one of those companies that we invested in actually uses waste methane to make a petroleum alternative. So basically hooks up to a wastewater treatment plant and uh, can use that methane to make polyester and plastics for injection molding instead of petroleum. And it's ocean and landfill biodegradable. Pretty exciting stuff. But is it profitable stuff? Ask the VC. For us, when we're looking at investment opportunities, we want to find things that are kind of drop-in to the existing system and can take a huge amount of market share if, they, if and when they scale. 
um, we're relatively certain this one is going to scale. So that could revolutionize um, the synthetic uh, kind of market and, and take a big chunk out of poly and a lot of the issues that come along with it. But let's step away from money for a second and get back to garbage. Thinking about more on um, circular material side of things, just an insane amount of clothing goes to landfill every year and it doesn't biodegrade. And about 80% of clothing that's made is some sort of blend of polyester and cotton. And you think about that, and it's fiber that's already been made. It's this material that's already existing. Um, And there are ways for that to go back and be made back into fiber and back into material um, in a very efficient way. And so the second company that we invested in is called Cirque. And they can take like a 50-50 polycotton T-shirt post-consumer and break that into the cellulosic component from the cotton, which can go to make those things like that I was mentioning earlier, like tensile lyocell viscose, which is about 10% of fibers that go into clothing right now. And then the other part, which is the components that go into making polyester, can be reconstituted and made into either polyester again or just PET in whatever state you would like to use it. Um, and that goes back and can go back into the existing supply chain. But with so much clothing already being out there, simply finding new and better ways of making even more clothes is only part of the solution. There's another aspect to consider. The other part of this is thinking about resale and rental. And so thinking about utilization of the items that are in your closet and the types of things that you have that maybe you only wear once or twice a year and whether it makes sense to actually own that thing or it makes more sense to rent it. And so while rental is kind of a smaller scale thing right now with companies like Rent the Runway, um, we think that that's going to change quite drastically, and uh, brands are starting to do bring more of that in-house um, and think more in their production about the items that would make more sense to produce fewer of because people are using them a lot less um, and enable their customers um, to rent in a way that they kind of own that relationship um, and, and keep them in the loop, but also get more utilization out of each item that's produced. This had me thinking about some new platforms where you can both buy and sell your used clothes. All of these things for that are reused platforms, I think, are fantastic. Um, I think it, it, Poshmark just went public. ThreadUp just went public. We have companies like The Real Real um, that, that went public, I think, maybe 2019, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but these, you know, this behavior change is it's fantastic. So the question about thread up is uh, people send things in and they're clearing their closets out. It's an alternative to, let's say, Goodwill. Um, they get credit for it, um, credit or cash, and it's out of their closet and it's easy and they probably get more benefit from that than, than simply donating it to, to Goodwill. Um, but there are kind of inefficiencies in that system um, where where we're looking for the future that we think things might shift um, as brands become much more aware of the amount of their items that are trading on secondary platforms. Um, And so some of the things that are really interesting to us on that side of the house is thinking about rental platforms that um, brands can launch themselves but don't have to hold any of that inventory. So there are a few brands now that – 
have launched these sorts of platforms um, where a consumer, um, one of their customers has bought something and they no longer want it for some reason. Either it didn't fit and they bought it on final sale, maybe they wore it once or twice and they didn't really love it as much as they didn't fit them quite right. Um, but it allows them to basically sell that to another person without the brand actually touching it. But it has the brand's sort of halo on it so that customers know to go there. Brands are not just going to get into the used clothing game, Leslie says. They're also going to get into the rental game. Instead of a rent the runway that's just sort of a boutique for rental, brands offering their own sort of rental solutions for their customers. Vince is doing it now and Taylor's doing it now. Um, there are a few, um, Decathlon, which is a, a European, um, actually it's a global um, outdoor brand, um, is doing it in Europe, which is powered by one of our portfolio companies called Libby. Um, they're offering their own rental programs for particular parts of their business. Um, so we think that that's going to be super interesting for the future. As someone who's not exactly into fashion, this all seems great to me. There's a problem, so let's see some solutions. But to someone who loves fashion, I wonder, isn't it kind of hard to take on the thing you're so drawn to? A constant struggle in my life because I grew up obsessed with clothing. Um, My mother owned a clothing boutique in Atlanta in the 70s and 80s. I have literally an entire room in our home that's a closet full of vintage and antique clothing from all the way from my great-grandmother. Um, and beautiful things, some of which I can wear, but it's something that's very much kind of a part of my, um, my psyche almost. Like I think self-expression through clothing is something that I'm ex- extremely passionate about. Um, so when the world of impact investing started bubbling up, I was something that was extremely interesting to me. Um, and then eventually when I started looking at the apparel industry and the opportunities around improving some of these things that allow for that creativity and love for self-expression and all of those things to still exist in parallel with, um, making a more efficient, better, um, industry for the future was something that that's, that's really the reason why I joined my partner and, and this, this firm is because that's what I decided I could spend the rest of my life being passionate about and waking up every morning and spending my time, um, you know, hopefully improving the world, but also being very profitable for myself and for our limited partners in our fund. Leslie is not the only person who loves both fashion and the environment. In fact, The environment is top of mind for a lot of people. That might explain why so many brands are positioning themselves as earth-friendly. But how do we know if they're using environmentally friendly practices or if they're just saying so? In other words, how much greenwashing is going on in the apparel industry? There's a ton of greenwashing, and I think that there's a spectrum between um, companies. Well, I don't want to say it's a spectrum because you can have the same company doing all of these things at the same time, um, where they come up with things that are very marketing driven to tell stories and maybe don't necessarily have too much of a direct um, positive impact on their own operations. Then you have companies that are very much shifting their operations, finding suppliers that are doing things fundamentally differently um, are, you know, 
seeking all, you know, to have reporting and all of these tools and things where it's not just like I'm giving 1% to a philanthropic organization, but they're actually shifting the way that they're doing business. But a lot of the solutions that are needed for those businesses to really shift quickly and for that impact to scale um, are only now starting to exist and are not commercialized. And so then you have companies that are somewhere in the spectrum of like doing all three um, and may be really dinged for the fact that they haven't totally shifted their operations yet, um, but they might be actually investing in some of these solutions in a major way. So Leslie says this really comes down to one very important question. What is actually possible in this very moment? Because companies can't just stop producing. And there are not enough, let's say, good you know, suppliers that do things in a way that is going to be massively impactful at this very moment. So I think it's all about the balance of what you're doing in the immediate term and being open and honest about it and having goals of where you want to go into the future and have a plan of getting there. When it comes to the issue of greenwashing, Leslie says, I think the most important thing is the transparency. And I think that's where the biggest challenge is. There, there is a massive lack of transparency in this industry, um, but that's improving and we need tools for that to improve. But the greenwashing aspect of it is when you do have these, these sort of, hey, like, look over here, we're committing and donating to some philanthropic organization, but there aren't things happening in our actual operations that are shifting the way that we produce. Um, and so if you're going to be not forward-looking and changing in the way that you're operationally doing things, it is disingenuous to just be donating philanthropically. It might also be better than doing absolutely nothing, but it is disingenuous. So yes, greenwashing is bad, and it's dishonest. But maybe it's also an indication that things are moving, that we're making progress. Removing myself from this and just looking generally at like the private, both private investment industry, public markets, that kind of thing, um, I think that this shift is not linear, and it's happening at a pace uh, that is that is changing drastically. So I think ESG integration, even at the biggest kind of asset management houses, is becoming more of an actual necessity. And I, I can't put like a number time frame on it, but I think even in the last five years, the acceptance and realization of what it actually is. Um, meaning like integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into your investment decision-making process. And I think that is something that always happened to some degree, but the scorecard of like weighting towards those factors being incredibly important um, has just shifted drastically. So maybe ESG will become so important that counterintuitively, ESG will actually disappear because to be considered at all for investment dollars, a company will simply have to be environmentally friendly, socially conscious, and have good governance. It'll be table stakes. Fundamental. Just a baseline thing that no longer even has to be mentioned. We're eking closer and closer to that, and I, I think that it's going to happen a lot faster than, than 
people anticipated. I mean, you look at some of the statements from like the Black Rocks and JP Morgans of the world around these topics, and they're real, they're serious about it. It's not they're not just paying lip service to people, um, and it's going deeply within the organizations. Um, so I'm I'm extremely optimistic that it is more and more going to become a world of it just being how how things are, um, and then you see kind of like early stage investing and ventures constantly being the stuff that's at the vanguard of figuring out how to make things better and better. I'm, I'm extremely optimistic. I want to thank our guest, Leslie Harwell, managing partner of Alante Capital. And also thank you for listening. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you like what you hear, check out other episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, or come on over to 74 westcom that's 74-A-N-D-W-E-S-T dot com, where we've got all of the episodes ready for you to stream and where you can learn more about the client and employee intelligence work 74 and West delivers. See you next time.